Well, one of the most influential Christians, especially Christian writers, but I would say Christians in the last hundred years, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you've never heard of him, he wrote two of the arguably best works of the 20th century on what it means to be and live as a Christian. He wrote The Cost of Discipleship in 1937, still a good read, and Life Together in 1939. And you'll notice by those dates that they coincide with right before World War II. Bonhoeffer was German, living and writing in Germany under some pretty intense Nazi supervision, I mean, flat-out oppression in the 1930s and then during the war years in the 40s. His denomination, his Christian views were highly censored. He was eventually arrested, uh, imprisoned, and executed by the Nazis three weeks before the end of the war is when he was executed. His crime, I guess, being an enemy of the state. But perhaps it was his leadership of an underground seminary, a community of Christians who dared to follow Jesus by sharing a common life together. They wanted to discover what it meant to be a family of faith in Christ, and Bonhoeffer trained them to be pastors to help lead others into their fellowship in the kingdom of God. So in his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Christian brethren. He meant it. So much so that he was willing to risk, even sacrifice his life for that community with other brothers and sisters. No doubt Bonhoeffer would affirm the beginning of Psalm 133. How good, how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started a new sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent, and there are 15 of these Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Sometimes you'll hear them referred to in various ways, the Psalm of Ascents or Song of Ascents or collectively as Psalms of Ascent. It's kind of an interchangeable name. Why are they called that? Well, it's literally in their title in the Bible. Uh, it's written underneath those numbers. It's a Psalm of Ascent. And it literally means the going up psalm. There could be a couple explanations for the term going up. It could be a metaphor for, you know, connecting with God above us. Uh, maybe they were choral anthems that were sing, sung and lifted up, you know, in praise to God. Uh, if it wasn't a choir singing, maybe it was individuals singing them as they ascended the stairs to the temple or to make a sacrifice. Most scholars, however, believe that it, does, it has to do with the pilgrimage that ancient Israelites did three times a year. The whole you know, community, the whole people, the whole nation would head up to Jerusalem, which is at elevation, and as they would make their way there in spring, summer, and fall, they would sing these psalms together. Or maybe it's all of the above. We have no idea. But Julia launched the series a couple weeks ago with a sermon on Psalm 130, and she reminded us to bring all of our desperate, dark prayer, the times where we just feel like we're living in the dark, bring all those prayers to God and wait with courage for God's light to, step, or for God to light the next step. Last week, I looked into Psalm 131, which encourages us to prune something out, some things of our life out, like blind ambition that we might have, and instead to calm 
and quiet ourselves before the Lord. This week, we're going to take a look at Psalm 133, which is um, a reflection or which reflects the blessings of our faith community. And so we're going to read this together. I invite you to stand if you are able. Don't worry. It's only three verses long. So here we go. Let's read this together. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. That's is the reading of God's word. Please have a seat. Well, the picture this paints sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But how many of us can relate? The phrase God's people is literally brothers. It's a familial term that includes both men and women, boys and girls. The old school way of saying this was like Bonhoeffer used. It was brethren, brethren, or kindred. The message translation of the Bible says brothers and sisters. It's people who are relatives in God's family. Thinking of our own family, I wonder what yours is like. You know, you get all the the parents, the grandparents, the siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, whoever. You get them all together. And how would you describe that get-together? As pleasant? As good? As dwelling in unity? Or more like fighting like cats and dogs, right? Uh, are, you, are you living together in unity, or does it seem like you're in perpetual conflict? I, I don't know. What's your family like? Clearly, I don't understand what's intended here in Psalm 133, unless this is like an image of heaven, of what life could be like. Is that what's alluded to by life evermore in verse 3? Well, Psalm 133 paints a vivid picture of what God intended all along for himself and for us. Life is better when it's done in relationships and in community with others, no matter how different they may be from us. As a person of faith, you and I are a member, meant to be a participant in a faith community, and we see this from the beginning. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth Genesis 1 is really a poem or, or like poetry where there's a cadence of God's activity each and every day and it ends the same. Day after day after day, it ends with God declaring that it is good. It is good, tov in Hebrew. And that makes it all the more striking when God finds something that is not good. Do you remember what that is? It's not good for the man to be alone. And along comes Eve. You know, we've grown pretty familiar with the story of creation, which kind of has taken on a life of its own in pop culture that may or may not be based on the actual biblical account. In fact, Eve didn't come along right away. It was the man and the woman at first. Uh, Adam didn't name Eve until after the fall, which is 
kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, another little tidbit, you know, there's no apple. There is no apple. There is fruit, but it's not, it could have been an apple. It could have been a breadfruit. It could have been a tomato, right? That's technically a fruit. We, we just don't know, but, you know, often we think of apple. Well, there's a subtle nuance that gets lost in tr- translation here, and it has to do with the Hebrew word for people, which is Adam. What does Adam sound like? Adam. You know, did, was it Adam and then people were named uh, Adam afterwards or the other way around? I mean, we don't really know. It's this beautiful play on words. It's both individual, it's collective, it's both personal and communal. And then along comes the serpent who twists God's word and plays on the human penchant to desire and want more. Hey, you can be more like God in both his knowledge and his independence. The devil's scheme hasn't changed much since those days. It's basically one of isolation and separation for each one of us from God, from others. It's all based on a lie. Hey, hey, you don't need God. You can become self-reliant. And what do all these other people bring you other than headache and heartache? Amen, right? Since the beginning, the world around us, our own flesh within us, and the devil have conspired against us to isolate us and separate us from God and one another. This plays out each and every day on a personal and corporate level. You know, sin is both a condition and also wrongs committed against God, ourselves, and others. That's why we need the forgiveness found only in Christ and why we need the transformation of our soul. And the transformation isn't part of a cosmic self-help scheme where we embark on an eternal um, you know, self-improvement plan designed by God. No, God bought us back with his own flesh and blood so that we might dwell with him and that our relationship with other people and with God's creation might be restored, maybe even restoried. So God's original plan before sin entered the picture was centered around community with himself and with others. Is it any wonder that when someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is, he said to love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second one is equally important. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, through the years, I've heard lots of people say, I've even even seen it in print, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And I mean, I get it. People can be a chore, to say the least. In fact, the classical pastor joke is, I'd love the job if I just didn't have to work with all the people, right? I've never said that, ever. Uh, On one hand, you have churches, um, I mean, we understand this. There are are churches out there that just aren't functioning or they're dysfunctional, um, where the community seems really toxic to both people's faith and relationships. And I would never say that you should just passively resign yourself to a dysfunctional church community. That's not what I'm saying. But in saying, I love Jesus and not the church, it usually means the person who says this or writes it 
stopped worshiping with any other Christians and participating in a faith community at any level. And all I want to say is that you really don't love Jesus or you're only going halfway, right? What does he say to his disciples in John 13? He says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What's the word that gets repeated over and over again? Well, both love and one another. Amen. Amen. Loving only Jesus means you're only halfway home. Eugene Peterson writes, In the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, the Bible knows nothing of a religion defined by what a person does inwardly in the privacy of thought or feeling or apart from others on a lonely retreat. No faithful individuals are always part of a faith community. And when you look at the Bible, God is always working with groups of people. And if we think it's frustrating, sometimes I wonder what God thinks, right? That group has taken on a different form and shape, um, a different expression, a different look and feel across time and across cultures, but there's always a community of God's people. Under the new covenant established in Jesus' blood, this is known as the church. The church, the ecclesia, and the question is, are you, am I, participating or not? You know, over the last 50 years, uh, maybe 100 years, Christians, especially in the, you know, parts of the world like the United States, we've made the good news of Jesus into one of only individual salvation. And we've largely left out of a, a, a very significant portion of the good news, and that's the new community created in him. The New Testament calls it the ecclesia, or the ecclesia, however you want to pronounce it. It means the gathering. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you automatically become members of the gathering, the universal church, yes, but also you're meant to be participants in a local body of believers. And I realize that all of you here this morning means that I'm preaching to the choir. But we're fuzzy on this. We need to understand why. You know, um, if you don't believe me, tell me why Jesus worked with 12 disciples and lived with them in community. In Acts 2, as Peter is preaching to the, the crowd, the saving news of Jesus, the church was formed when like 100 plus people were all together in one place. That's the ecclesia the gathering, and almost from the start. That gathering started to leak. It started to take on water. Uh, People started drifting away. They caught up in their own private matters. They prioritized other parts of their life over the gathering. And that's why we have reminders throughout the New Testament, like Hebrews 10, 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The message puts it this way. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. 
not avoiding worshiping together as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. So here we sit 2,000 years later. We have wonderful technology. Uh, it started with the radio. Maybe it started with the newspaper. I'm not sure. But it start, the radio, TV, now we have lots of online media, even our own YouTube channel as a church. Um, man, it's taken on a very different look and feel. But while the world has changed, the underlying need for Christians to know and be known by other Christians in community has never changed. Critically, critically important. You know, so are you participating? What does that mean? We have a word for that here at Cascade Covenant, a new word. It's part of the... Um, the triangle, the up, in, and out triangle that some of us are learning as, as part of the life shapes groups. And we talk about everyone, every follower of Jesus needs a group of people that's in. And that might have a negative connotation. You know, we say, oh, well, don't be a click, right? Hey, find some friends and make community in church. But the second that it happens, then we, we're like telling people not to form a click. Um, in has to do with one, a group of people that are following Jesus, you know, there were lots of disciples of Jesus. There was a large, large crowd. But there was 12 that Jesus gave access to his life. So it's like this extended family, yes, but the key word has to do with access. Who are the people in your life that you've given access to? That's the hardest thing for me and I think maybe for many of us, is we're great at creating carefully manicured exteriors for all the world to see, aren't we? But we're not so good at allowing others to see behind the veil. It's a little intimidating. It's a little vulnerable. vulnerable. It feels like a risk. And quite honestly, who's got time for that? Who's got time for that level of um, I mean, to, to build that level of trust with others, that you're able to kind of drop your guard more and more and more. I mean, you, you can just go for it. But most of us have learned by this stage in our life that that can end very painfully, can it? So who has time to give people access? We're too busy running from task to task, appointment to appointment, event to event. Man, when... when uh, our children, Corey and mine, were in elementary school. I remember just feeling frustrated and tired out by the number of activities that we tried to cram into each week. And I kept thinking, both of us out loud, why? Why does everyone do this? I mean, I, you just look, I guess this is just what you do. Everyone else is doing it. And I couldn't ever really find a good answer. So we tried as parents to weed out as much as we could. We held, uh, man, there were activities like we love sports. Corey and I both played a lot of sports. Uh, we still do. We held select sports at arm's length because the commitment just seemed like too much. And we were committed to participating in a faith community. And more and more as our kids got older, all those games just got shoved into Sunday. The funny thing is, like, as our kids have now, like, almost age out of that period, the games moved again. They're not on Sunday. I mean, they're different times. Um, 
But we always held that at arm's length. And, I, you know, I pick on sports, but na- pick your poison, right? The commitment and everyone around us seems to be either trying to do it all or just like specializing in one thing. And the commitment, it, it, it's just too much. Through middle and high school, our kids' pace has only intensified. Now, we have two high school students. We have four separate schedules in our family, which is unbelievably difficult for someone like me to keep track of, you know? And we have to pick and choose. In fact, I was joking earlier over here with the Andersons, like, hey, this is the first time you've all seen each other all week, isn't it? (laughs) And that's what it feels like. Like, oh, there's just these moments that we have to pick and choose. And I don't know how people do it with five or six schedules or more people in their family, but often I've wondered if I'm ruining my kids. How can I help them prioritize a healthy balance between work and rest when I seem to struggle with it myself? You know, we're fighting against a juggernaut here in the United States. Otherwise, the Bible would call an idol. I used to think that the idol we as followers of Christ Um, in the United States wrestled most with was materialism, you know, just our desire and our drive to accumulate more and more. Like, when is it ever enough? I don't know. I'm not so sure that's the case. I kind of wonder if the bigger idol in our culture has to do with work. You know, um, it's productivity. It's being busy. Oh, you, you haven't had as much material success as you've wanted? Well, maybe you haven't worked hard enough. Oh, you're, you feel a little short of the talent gap between where you are and where all the other people are in sports or music if you're a kid or maybe it's skills at work or whatever. Well, you just need to work harder, right? Never mind. Some of us are just created with bigger capacities than others. But man... We can achieve that dream in in America if we just work. I'm telling you, it is a big lie. So much so that when when I say it out loud, I'm like, is that really true? I grew up on a farm. There was no such thing as a vacation. You know, the cows always have to eat, right? You just keep working. And we keep adding more and more activities to our schedule and our kids' schedule, and it pushes out the very people and priorities that make life a gift from God. This is why we have no access, no time, no margin, no space to let others in. And one of the things we're fighting for as Christians in our culture is for doing life together. Uh, just like Bonhoeffer was willing to risk dying for, life together is more than doing faith together. Do you see the difference? We often think, we think in compartments, and we've got the Sunday compartment, and we've got the you know, work, school, recreation compartments, and you know, as long as those line up with other things, and we've got the faith compartment. But Jesus is calling us to something more. And the good news in Jesus that we've all experienced as individuals is so much richer and deeper together. In a preface for the long obedience in the same direction, Leif Peterson, who's Eugene Peterson's son, 
is describing a reaction that his dad gave to a note of thanks uh, when Eugene was in his final days. He's since passed away. And someone was just thanking him for being there, for doing something pastorally, and what a difference it had made in their life. And uh, Eugene says, oh, that's good, that's good. And his son clarified what he meant by good. He said this, not that he had done something good, but that when we are in relationship with God and others, good things inevitably happen. My dad's message was was that the good news always plays out best in relationship. Always in relationships. How good, how wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. So why is this so hard? Well, the good news and the bad news The good news is that God's on our side in this of wanting us to live together in unity. He wants to bless us with deep and rewarding relationships in his family. A youth pastor friend tells his students that Christian community is a place to know and be known, to love and be loved, to celebrate and be celebrated, to serve and be served. As, you, as Peterson describes, it's a place where each person is taken seriously, learns to trust others, depend on others, be compassionate with others, rejoice with others. But the bad news is that we're all people. We're all people with our own personalities, backstories, baggage, bad habits, unhealed bruises. Many of us, I mean, I, I won't speak for myself here, right? We're, we're all quirky, aren't we? Prickly sometimes. Maybe difficult to like, let alone love. And if you haven't noticed, half of the New Testament is full of instruction and encouragement about living with and loving others. Things like gentleness, kindness, grace, and forgiveness come to mind. Uh, There's learning to speak with loving honesty, surrendering our pride and and selfishness. I mean, this is hard stuff. It's leaving things behind like gossip, slander, anger, jealousy, and a lot of other sinful habits that just shred our relationships. It's a journey for sure. But Christ is with us, wants to heal us. The Holy Spirit is here to empower and transform us. And there's two insights that I want to close with this morning, bringing this all back to Psalm 133, that help us and encourage us to shape a good and pleasant life together. The first one is that when God's people live together in unity, it's like costly anointing oil. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. That is a really vivid, really weird image, isn't it? And it's meant to be a throwback. Back to the Exodus, when Moses anointed his brother Aaron as the first high priest of Israel. And often olive oil then was mixed with sweet-smelling spices It was used for skin and um, hair care. You you think of lotion that we might use or or conditioner. And the ancient Near East is a very dry, arid, dusty place. 
And so a form of hospitality that was often shared to your visitors, a way to welcome them, is that you would wash their feet and that you put a little oil on their head. It was soothing and refreshing. Welcome. So you combine that with the biblical significance of oil, which is always used as a sign of God's presence. In the New Testament, we talk about the Holy Spirit being a seal upon your life. We, we anoint people with oil. It's very symbolic of God's presence. And so here you have this image of Aaron being drenched in oil. It's the all-encompassing presence of Christ. It's so excessive that it's running down across his face, through his beard, onto his collar. And the thing about oil is that it reduces friction. Maybe if we learned to receive one another as priests, because that's what the New Testament calls individual Christians, we are the royal priesthood. We're meant to minister and be ministered to one another. What if we received each other, the quirky, prickly, difficult to like and love people that each one of us, I know that's not you, but like for everybody else, right? What if we learned, what if we learned to receive each other as God's anointed? And we held that level of respect for each other, even if you vote differently than me. Even if you feel differently about certain things in the news than me. Even if we don't belong to the same Facebook because we look and think exactly, uh, Facebook group because we think alike as me. What if we dealt with one another as God's anointed with that level of respect? Wow. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Refreshing like the dew of Mount Hermon being found in a dry and dusty place like Jerusalem, that would be incredible. And originally, I thought this psalm was all about how much we needed relationships and community. But as I sat with it all week, I realized, no, that's not quite it. It's more about the beauty and goodness of God. It's about the common life that we found in Christ. It can unify extremely different and diverse people to the point that they're able to call one another brother and sister. In the divided world that we live in, think what a witness that could be. Amazing. We're daring God to make us into his heavenly family here on earth. How good, how pleasant it is. When God's people, that's you and me, when we dwell in unity. Amen. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, it sounds impossible. I mean, you, you, you just look around, look around us here. Um, we're forming tribes and, and groups all over the place. Maybe it's because we're scared, frustrated. I, I mean, I don't. Maybe it's because we feel lonely. Help us not to do that as your followers. Help us to be willing to find something greater than ourselves 
or our ideas or our philosophies that might unify us. Might that be you? Lord, help us. Help us to learn to respect and learn to take others seriously and have compassion and love one another. Here, it's, it's, it's practice each and every week, but not just on Sunday. Help us to find access for people that you've led into our life, Lord, to find a, a group of fellow believers that can love and encourage us. We don't have to all be the same. But Lord, help us to figure out how to manage our schedules in such a way where it's not just, oh, this is the faith time in my life, but that it's all your time and that there's a group of people that we're on journey with towards you. It sounds like a big ask. In fact, it sounds almost impossible, Lord. But help us to discover how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together with you in unity. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, please rise for our closing song together. All right.